this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots, yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. Have you ever thought about bringing in a president, CEO, someone to run your company with you, for you? My next guest, Matt McGowan, is that individual. He is a professional leader of companies who was brought in by two guys who built a $9 million software company and wanted to sell it. And they thought by bringing in Matt, they could bring in some professional talent and ultimately grow the pie much larger. And that's exactly what happened. Years later, Matt sold the business for $61 million. And what I thought you might find interesting is the journey, what it's like to bring in a professional manager. And I wanted to get inside Matt's head so that you would have the benefit of what is going on inside the head of a professional manager if you as a founder bring someone like that to the table. So Matt shared with tremendous candor what it's like to be a president, an outsider brought into a founder-led business that has the mission and vision to sell. Here to tell you the entire story is Matt McGowan. Matt McGowan, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. Good to be here. I would like to start at Oxford University, because I was looking at your profile before we started, and I noticed that you went to Oxford, and that's a pretty cool university to go to. So how did that come about? Like, How did you get to Oxford? That's, uh, that's a long story and a great question, and um, uh, I'll keep it short. I, uh, I, was, I was trading on Wall Street. I got transferred to the San Francisco trading desk, working early hours in San Francisco in the late 90s not happy at all in life um, and switched in the late nineties. You had this thing called the, you know, the dot-com phenomenon going on in San sure. Francisco. Um, I switched to a small development shop, which we eventually within a, about a year and a half of me joining uh, sold to a UK based business uh, called Pearson, the guys who own the financial times. Sure. And while we were doing diligence, I was going back and forth between San Francisco and London. I learned about the business program at Oxford and fell in love. Neat. And, you went to England and the rest is defining in, in terms of your, your culture or your, uh, your story for sure. I would like you to define something called a key man clause. And if you wouldn't mind, use it as a way into the Adestra story, how you came to become uh, part of the Adestra team. So, uh, a key man clause is inserted in uh, a document and it uh, 
again, I'm going to butcher this and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it identifies an individual who uh, is considered very important or key to the transaction. And it limits that person in some capacity. So for me, I, uh, I was on the board of Adestra. Uh, at the time, we decided to take our first, our Series A, our one and only round uh, with a private equity firm out of the UK called Business Growth Fund. And in the 11th hour of that negotiation, everything was ready to go. Both parties seemed extremely happy. They dropped in, in the redlining process, a key man clause. First, I had learned about it then too. And it stated in summary that everything was good to go as long as Matt McGowan joined the business in three months. So the monies would be transferred if I joined the business in three months and was the custodian. Why was BGF, Business Growth Fund, so keen to have you as part of Bedestra? That is the, that question will haunt me to, <laughs> no, that's a, that, I, I, to be fair, it's a great, it's a great question. And I uh, don't, uh, again, I'll probably butcher this as well, but I've been through the uh, kind of zero to infinity game before with, uh, with a few early stage companies um, and the founders of the business uh, had not. And uh, in the negotiation process, uh, it was clear that um, I played an important role in the business as a board member and BGF in their infinite wisdom decided that I would play, uh, I should play even a bigger part. So um, you were at the time uh, leading corporate finance for the YouTube no. division at Google? Is that right? No. Uh, I was leading strategy for, for YouTube and, and, and at Google. And uh, I was very comfortable. I had just had a child and I had just moved to Toronto from New York. And I had just gotten married. So a lot of things had happened uh, in that year. And um, you could say another big event happened as well. When they answered that clause, I, uh, I had to have a sit down with my wife and have a big so, talk. But you're at, so you're at YouTube part of Google mm -hmm. and you're leading strategy and, but that doesn't, it's not the same as corporate finance. So strategy would, I would, I think of strategy as generally acquiring companies, but, but it's broader than that, right? It's, it's everything. Right. The right. Direction of the company. Companies like Google have the luxury of hiring internal uh, strategy operations, consultant types. So they have like their own Mercer or their own, uh, you know, Bain or McKinsey internally. Yeah. And I got yeah. brought in on that team. Yeah. It, it's funny. So, so you were brought in to a Destra. We should define, by the way, what a Destra does. Uh, can you, in layman's terms, explain the business uh, to our listeners? So a Destra is a software company. And it worked with enterprise clients, Fortune 5,000 types uh, across a variety of sectors that help those companies to power that, those companies' communications with their customers. Got it. And I think a lot of, um, let me ask you, I'm going to ask that question later. So what was your personal reaction when BGF, Business Growth Fund, this private equity group, raised the specter of you joining. You're, you're a YouTube guy. You're on the board of Adestra. Like, did they drop it into a conversation? Was it literally in the document that you saw it for the first time? I'm assuming they, they'd raised it with you over a beer where it's like, hey, would you be up for this? 
Um, you would have hoped so. <laughs> um, actually, uh, one of the Adestra founders called me and told me that this was coming. And then the very next day, it was dropped into the document. And what was your re so the, the Adestra founders were Henry Hyder Smith and Steve. I don't know Steve's last name, but Henry and Steve are the founders. Yep. So was it Henry who called you or Steve? Yeah, it was Henry. So what's that conversation like? What did he say? How did he position it with you? I mean, you got this cushy job at YouTube. I'm like, this is great. Uh, I don't know how cushy it was, but I mean, that's a pretty big company. Listen, there was a lot of security, a lot of job security where I was. And like I said, just having bought a house here in Toronto, uh, you know, having a child and getting married, a lot of change had happened that year already. So uh, this was another big, uh, big drop. Uh, it was interesting because Henry first proposed it to me as like, you won't be working for me, but like I was, right? He's the founder and CEO of the business. So like, but he's like, it's not that I'm asking you to come work for me. I just, I need a partner. I need someone to work with um, and help us grow this business outside of the footprint that, you know, the current footprint in the UK. And to be fair, I spent a career building businesses. This was, would have not been my first time Google was the outlier in my career, not a Destra. Um, and I got excited, to be fair. But then I decided not to make any commitment to think about it before we even got into remuneration and all the, the, those kind of you know, discussions. My wife and I had to chat about it because with this young family emerging and um, new city where I'm a, on a visa, employment visa, not, you know, like I was in a really good role doing really, you know, interesting things with a, with an exciting business like Google. It was, it's kind of like when you have two choices, it's a choice, <laughs> choice can get difficult. Like these were two really different, but like fantastic opportunities. Um, and one was a bit unknown, Pedestra, because I had not worked as an operator in that business before. Only as an and advisor. what convinced you to join? So Henry says, hey, I'm not asking you to come work for me, but we need a partner. What, what was the straw that broke the camel's back that got you over the hump? So I wanted to do it from the second they asked me. Um, just so you should know that. I, I, had, I had been a customer of Pedestra's years before. I had sat on the board for a couple of years. Um, I saw the path. I could. It was. It was in my head. You know, every board meeting, I'd get more and more excited about this business. Like, I, I had an idea where this business could go and how we could get it there. Um, so for me, it was more operationally, as you can imagine. Google pays pretty well. Um, making sure that my mid to long term uh, opportunity was uh, on par. With where I was, if not if not greater, because of the higher level of risk associated with it. So, um, so did BGF twist your arm? Did Henry like say, "Come on, man, do it"? Like, how did it go from interesting? I wonder how that's going to work to you signing the paper. It's a good one. Um, so BG. So Henry said, "I'm not even going to negotiate with you. I'm going to pass you to BGF." Because I've oh, known really? Henry for a long time. We have been friends, uh, colleagues. And my, one of my biggest worries about coming on board was we had a really strong rapport. We were very different people. And I didn't know if we were going to mesh well together. And when things don't mesh well at the top, that's, you know, that's a disaster, if you ask me. And um, so I spent a good few weeks negotiating with the team, uh, Sarah and James over at BGF, their, their, their investment team. And we came to uh, an agreement. Uh, I had to stretch them a little bit. 
Um, but we came to an agreement that made sense for my family and I, and um, I got even more excited, you could say, because now this was becoming a reality. Um, but yeah. And, and funny because, you know, in a funny way, when you're, when you're on, you were on the board of a Destra before, before joining, correct? Yes. Like I think of a board member as, as, I mean, clearly, you know, there's a, there's a legal definition of that, but it's also, there's an also, I feel like a mentoring relationship or an advising relationship where you are, you are be, your opinion is being sought by the CEO and it's kind of weird. It's, it's like a, it's like, uh, well, I don't know what it's like. What <laughs> you tell me what it's like, what did it feel weird to all of a sudden be brought into a company where you were the advisor and then more like the, the hired gun or the, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, hundred percent. And I, that's why Henry and I didn't negotiate. And, um, and that was my biggest concern. I, I knew Adestra inside and out, or so I thought I did, at least from a financial statements perspective and a relationships perspective with the leadership team and, 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 the, uh, and the team below that, uh, who I had met over the years when they sold us and when I joined the board and so on and so forth. But my biggest worry was that I'm coming off, I was, I was the, you know, coming off the board to be an operator. I'm exposing myself, right? Like it's easy to speak the talk, the talk. It's hard to walk the walk, right? And I, I was literally putting myself in a position where I had been looked up to for sure. And now they were gonna like find all the little dirty secrets out about how I really can operate <laughs> or how I can't. And, um, and not to mention when you're at Google, there's, there's someone like you in different markets. There's, there's backups to backups. There's, there is, there's like you, you are a, you're one piece of a larger puzzle. Uh, brought into a duster while I was a piece of the puzzle, it was a, much more of a key man uh, individual in, the, in, that, in, that, in that business. And I found, my lifestyle changed, right? So Adestra is a, a British business in the UK. We have aspirations across North America and into APAC. We've got something called time zones. We've got long travel times. There wasn't an office in Singapore that I could lean on or an office in New York or in, you know, in Paris. Someone had to get out on a plane and go have these meetings and, and, and build these partnerships and, and open these offices and sign the leases and so on and so forth. And, um, that, that was my, that was one of my other concerns because I had a young family at home and, um, you know, I think you can make the excuse that you're doing all this travel for, you know, for work, but you're doing it at a cost and the cost is your relationship at home. And, and that was something that I was very cognizant of going in, um, to the, to this and something I watched closely while I was in the business, but it was very difficult to manage. Um, you know, not being home Monday to Friday, three to four days a week is not ideal. You know, it's interesting. I did a, an interview years ago now with a very similar situation where you had a founder who, who reached a plateau. And I'm not suggesting that Steve or Henry reached this plateau, but they, they kind of needed more professional management. And, and they brought in, this individual brought in a, a CEO. And in fact, they brought in a CEO, he brought in the person in as a COO and it never worked. It, it, there was always this sort of weird, you know, 
ambiguity around who was leading the company because it was the founder, chief shareholder, and then the COO. The COO didn't have quite the mandate that they thought they were going to have. Did couldn't ultimately they it came to a head and the COO basically said, you've got to make me CEO and you've got to step down out of an operational role, he said to the C, the founders, because I can't, this is untenable the way we're structuring it. How did you guys structure uh, your relationship between Steve Henry, the founders, and you um, to, and, and, and sort of what was that like? Did you run into any of those issues and, and how, if, if you didn't, how did you avoid it? Right. I, so I, it's a, it's a great question. And I, uh, I could think of so many stories uh, around uh, that, that like kind of accentuate this, but what we ensured that we did was we made sure that we built the, we built a document, literally, we would call it like the swim lanes. And, um, and there was, you know, Steve and Henry were definitively well-defined in their, in their roles pre me. Um, I took a little bit off each of their plates. And then we ended up bringing in a CFO. We hadn't had a CFO. That was something that was out of scope for the three of us. Um, especially when you looked at multi-jurisdiction tax law across, you know, the planet. Um, and we, uh, we brought in regional operators uh, as well to take care of some of the day-to-day, but we planned this out ahead of time. And we, we agreed that like, this is probably not going to be the way it'll actually play out, but that we'll, we'll agree that this is a, a, the, the, the beginnings of this document and it'll be a living document that'll change. Um, and required lots of time together. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, often it was at odd hours because of our locations <laughs> around the world, but like we spent a lot of time together discussing this stuff fully open um, in an environment where there was no consequence for a bad recommendation. What was the most acrimonious area where the swim lanes seemed to cross over one another? Probably more Henry and I. Uh, so Steve Denner, very product focused. He took the he had the chief operations officer title. Henry had the CEO title. I was coming in as president. Uh, in reality, Steve was more of a chief product officer. Um, and then the CFO, when we brought him in, took over a lot of the operations. So to HR, speak. legal, exactly. blah, blah, blah. Exactly, yep. exactly. Um, but Henry and I were had the most overlap. And that was in our go-to-market strategy and how we were going to actually spend the dollars we had efficiently. The, um, the thing that was different between him and I was his experience was very local British, UK. Mine was, I guess I'd gone to Oxford and by the way, the business is based in Oxford. So that's a whole nother story, um, oh, but it was always nice to go back um, But um, every month. But the, uh, the North American and APAC markets were new to him. So, you know, we, we early on identified where he was strong, where I was strong, where gaps existed, where overlaps might exist and might happen. Um, and to be fair, I think it worked because Henry is one of the highest emotional intelligence people I've ever met. And he's, I call him an introvert, but he, when he's out and about, he is, he's gravitational. And um, so I, oh, like we just had a really good rapport, which allowed us to, you know, uh, 
make the micro movements that we needed to 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 adjust to each other's strengths and weaknesses and, and the business's needs. So yeah, go to market. Like the the I would say sales and marketing, if you have to look at it functionally, uh, were where we probably overlap the most. How sensitive was Henry over the Adesta brand? I mean, it was his brand. Like he could tell you the what why the logo looked the way it looked. He had his founder story he loved to speak to. Um, it, you know, it, when we sold the business, Henry had the, it was 15 years of his life. So Henry's now, he's, he's, he's in his mid forties. Uh, we sold the business a few years ago. So you're looking at like late twenties to early forties. Like it embodied everything. He, uh, you know, how, it was how he identified himself. Um, so the brand was very important to him. And that was another piece. Um, we didn't make any, you know, we had a strong marketing team. Um, we made some changes over the, over the years to how we go to market, but it all went through him first. Like, give me an example of the level of, of oversight he had on the brand. Like, could you send an email, like a mass email to customers without him looking at it? Uh, so that's a good, it's a good question. I, we were in the email business amongst other channels, so we would never send a mass email to customers, but, uh, okay. That's a bad question, but you know what I mean? Like if you were going to do a, a communication to your customers, yeah. would he have had to sort of approve that or, or, or at least he, no, no, he wouldn't have. And, um, and, and that changed over time also, right? Like early days months, I was very much lean on him for his thoughts on decisions. And over time, he was able to move on to other things and let, you know, let us kind of focus on what we needed to focus on. That said, we probably talked twice a day for three years. Um, so it would be rare, I would have sent something that he didn't know about. Um, he may not know the details of it, but I was, oh, we, when we spoke, we, we covered off on a wide range of, of, of topics, but anything critical, he would know. And then we also used, you know, operationally, we used things like one, we were on Microsoft, so OneDrive and such. So like he had access to everything just like I would have. So, you know, we were always kind of poking around, but he brought me in for sure to let go, which was, I think probably the genesis of a strong relationship. Um, and he wanted me there which also helped. It wasn't being forced on him like I thought it might have been. I honestly believe that one day I will find out that the key man clause was his idea, not BGS. Really? I, I have that assumption. It's never been spoken. It doesn't, but I bet you one day over a beer somewhere in the world, uh, that story will surface. That's awesome. I would be, uh, <laughs> I would love to know that for sure. I'll let you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess a lot of people listening to this are are kind of Henry and Steve's shoes a while ago. They are uh, 100% owner-operated businesses. They are uh, one of the things they are contemplating. I think is bringing in "quote unquote" professional management. Right? Some of them are doing that to get to the next level. Others are doing that because that's what they think they need to attract an investment. Um, and I'd be curious to know if you were talking to Henry and Steve circa 10 years ago or 15 years ago prior to, to that, like what advice would you give uh, an owner operator who is contemplating bringing in um, really serious professional management? 
That's a good question. I think I think there's a few things, and and you know, bringing in professional management is definitively one of the probably most important or most impactful decisions a, a founder can make. I think another one, business continuity, in case something happens to the founder, you know, what 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 happens next? Where are all the where are the bodies buried, so to speak, and all the documents signed? Um, I, listen, we we had a strong rapport, Henry and I, and this wasn't the first time. He had asked me that I that he had come to me uh, to to join the business when when I you know it's interesting before I when we sold Incisive Media and I, before I joined Google we had this conversation and what I had told him was I'm not ready nor do I think the business is ready for me um, but I'm not going to tell you no I can't tell you yes but I'm not going to tell you no and he's like what does that mean I'm like I want to be involved but I don't want to be an operator at the moment. So I joined Google and he put me on the board. And what was the revenue of Adestra at the time? Like ballpark number of employees, that kind of just size-ish? Yeah, it was about half the size. Uh, so the so business doubled in the two and a half years I was at Google. Okay. Um, so the, so you sold an 18 million in top line revenue. So you were ballpark around eight or nine? Four. No, no, no. Sorry. Half the size of when I joined. So it was oh, like- Oh, I'm four. sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm okay, sorry. Yeah. So you were- It was, it was a young yeah. it was a young business in its infancy. Mm -hmm. I had a few clients. Um, one of the things, hey, listen, I'm not big on advice. I think, you know, especially when you're speaking to a large group like this, like everyone has their own needs. And I, I would, if I left any advice, I'd say, follow your gut. You know, you, you're you going to make the right choice if you make, the right choice is to make a choice. Um, but I uh, I would say for what worked for me and for Henry was our rapport and our relationship. And we can't, while, if you had, if you had, drawing this out on like a, on a chart, Steve and I probably were the most complimentary because we had very few overlapping skills. Henry and I overlapped significantly on, on quite a bit as we spoke about. What made it work was the relationship and the focus on a common goal and an incentive plan that helped us, you know, focus our energies. So, with, with respect to, you know, what worked for Henry was, and I, I, I'll add another thing, actually, another thing about trust. Because I had known Henry for so long, and I had built credibility with him over time, and he had, he knew about me, he knew about things that had gone well in my life, things that had not, setbacks I had had personally or, or professionally, um, successes I had had. Uh, we had a rapport. And that really, really listen, this doesn't work for everyone. And in all cases, you know, this is not, this is not always ideal, nor is it possible, but that relationship was the catalyst that allowed us to do the work we did. You mentioned incentive plan, and I, I obviously don't need to know the exact numbers in your incentive plan, but I would, I'd love to know if you can share how you structure the intermediate and long-term comp. Uh, I'm assuming you had a salary. Was it like a, a bonus, annual bonus? Was it shares? Like how did how did they structure it so you guys were aligned? You mentioned the shared incentive plan or something to that effect. So 
A couple of things. We there was definitely a salary, and that was a bit below where I had been at Google. But you know, cash flow is a real thing, and uh, salaries are <laughs> getting away of that sometimes. And um, the incentive plan. There was an incentive plan on an annual basis if we hit certain KPIs. Uh, you know, and the KPIs were around accelerated growth, not necessarily just uh, achieving a target. And and. And then yes, there was there was a, a the, the largest portion of the plan was equity, and that was the piece that was a no non-starter for me. So uh, when when BGF approached me and and Henry kind of parlayed me off to them for negotiations, I said we can't even we can't even have this conversation unless we're aligned on the exit, and that to me is the most important piece because, like I said earlier, I truly believe I see the path to this is this is not only super critical business uh, 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 function, you know, we, our, our partners delighted us in ways that are hard to explain in terms of how we, you know, connected their customers and drove revenue for them and, and pass all that information back to them. Um, but to me, I wanted to, uh, I was, yeah, that was, that was the only reason for me to leave was there was some sort of exit and I pushed really hard on an oversized uh, portion. Um, it's so, oversized in their mind, not necessarily mine. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's but, also but an equity piece because it sounds like, help me understand, but you know, one of the things that we've heard a lot on this show is like once you take outside money, you know, especially from a private equity group, the, talk, the clock is ticking. They, they don't invest to hold for 50 years. They want to exit. So presumably the exit conversation was one you had uh, before signing. The intent was that that you would be structuring Adesta to to be sold? The, the best thing about large private equity firms is they have lots of analysts who can push, push out lots of models and show you all sorts of exit scenarios and what it might be worth to you. And they definitively did that. And, uh, you know, whether or not you're going to achieve those scenarios are, you know, it's all up to you, supposedly. But um, I, uh, yeah. So for me, that was all discussed and inked. And uh, it, you'll notice I joined the business about three months after the equity was announced. That was uh, time for me to do my time at, you know, to, to my notice period at Google and also to, to make sure that this was all locked down. Um, so yeah, all that was very clear, <laughs> signed off. Uh, I had audited financial statements before I joined. I, you know, I had customer, I, I, as a board member, I knew pretty much what I was getting involved in and uh, therefore we could have all those conversations, which was and nice. What was the, you mentioned the revenue was around eight or 9 million at this point when you joined? At this point, yeah. Got it. And, and so... What was the mandate? Like, what, what did you see as the, the one or two things you needed to do in order to boost the value of the company? Uh, so, again, a lot of this at the time, what we, you know, we, we spoke to a lot of uh, uh, quite a few KPIs. One was grow our business outside of the UK. 99% of dollars were coming in from UK and uh, they, were, they had no reputation, footprint, uh, feet on the ground, anything outside of the UK. Um, but as a software company, uh, who is living in one of the most, uh, you know, uh, constrained data environments on the planet in the UK, um, with, with the, the GDRS opportunity- or whatever G- it's called. GDPR. G- yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Yeah. So like with all this, like we, 
that Dester had solved for, like CanSpam in the U.S. or Castle in Canada, or they'd already solved for a lot of the data requirements in other jurisdictions and markets, but they didn't have any experience operating in those markets, so like no one knew about. It. Um, so for me, I, you know, so growing that footprint, and we had put you know, basically uh, stakes in the ground that X percent of dollars should be coming out of the U.S. Well, actually, at the moment, at the time, it was North America um, by a certain time and then APAC shortly thereafter. So that was the big one. And to do that required building teams because, you know, people say some of these things sell themselves, but unfortunately they don't. So sales teams, customer service teams, um, client solution teams who could build and script kind of software integrations, um, for the business locally, uh, marketing, you know, you go down the list, the, uh, the teams get rather large, you know, robust rather relatively quickly. And so that was, that was like priority. Number one, uh, priority number two was kind of global business, uh, you know, making sure we were all working, uh, in concert, doing the right, uh, you know, making the right decisions. One of the things about software is if you update it in one place it often updates everywhere. So, you know, keeping that in mind. Um, and then three, like just be, being like uh, building the profile of the organization um, and, and all the, you know, making sure you're on the right uh, maps, making sure, um, you know, the business checks the right boxes, uh, is in the press at the right time with, uh, with, the, with the incumbents and, and doing the marketing automation and marketing tech industry. There's some few incumbents that, you know, are, are, are mammoth compared to, you know, David and Goliath compared to us. You, know, you got your sales forces and your Adobe's and your IBM's that we're going up against. No small feat, right? So um, just getting a meeting was tough for Adestra. Luckily, I had, you know, operated in these markets before. You know, before I had relationships and that definitely helped uh, getting in the door. Um, and the software took it the rest of the way. Software was well, amazing. And you were hugely successful because the, as I understand it, the business grew from 9 million in 2016 to 18 18. million and to 2000. So doubled in two years, which is, which is the, which all. Yeah. And I think about 90, if I remember correctly, 88, 90% of that was annual reoccurring with, um, so it was actually monthly reoccurring um, baked into an annual deal uh, in many cases, multi-year, uh, with monthly minimums and overage. Wow. It sounds like a recipe for a fantastic exit. So let's, let's get into that. So what triggered you guys to decide to sell? Was there an event of some sort that, that triggered it? With GDPR and Brexit, many of our developers were from Eastern Europe um, and they were in the UK. There were these macro events happening that, worried us let's just leave it at that um we didn't know how they were all going to fall like these these massive uh you know legislation couple that with uh founders who'd been in the game for over 10 years um and saw that they were sitting on a large kind of a large amount of equity but not wanting to mess up the cap table by selling it off so to speak um they were looking for some cash flow and uh we also weren't the personally. And, and we also weren't the only game in town, right? So there were other challengers on the market who had made, who had received significant investment. We took a small amount of money, but we were going up against companies that had taken, you know, 10 to 20 X what we had taken. 
and we and they were moving quickly. Let's leave it at that, right? And so when you kind of couple all that together, uh, it felt like the right time. I would add also we were receiving a ton of inbound. So once when I joined and we started um, really making some headway in North America with some major brands like Domino's Pizza and such. Um, we were on the map and, and people started sniffing around, you know, companies, private equity firms, strategic started sniffing around. So we, we found ourselves for a couple of months there getting distracted by them, having conversations with really no direction or understanding of where we wanted to go. So what we did is we kind of like built a, we built a pro, like a, a, a pro forma uh, response email, basically said, thank you, but no thanks. We'll keep you on file. When we're ready, we'll let you know. And um, pretty short and sent them off kept everyone on the side and um, we were sitting at a board meeting. There were some major acquisitions happening in the space at the time. And we, our appetite got wet. So we, 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 uh, we started, we held a little dance, so to speak uh, for um, uh, advisory firms. We found an amazing fit. And hold on before I want to get to there next, but you'd seen, um, like in the emails marketing space, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of some of the big acquisitions, but HubSpot's bought some stuff, Salesforce.com. Oh, it's all acquisitions, stuff. right? So right. IBM acquired Silverpop, uh, Salesforce acquired Exact Target. That's um, right. Uh, Campaigner went to Adobe. HubSpot picked up a bunch. Uh, some a bunch of the private equity firms, Insight Venture Partners, and such owned a, quite a few. You had your CRM wars going on. And part of the CRM is like the communications, the, the email piece. So, I mean, the space was, was going haywire. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was really hard to keep up on it, to be fair and run a business. And did you get a, a sense of what's, because some of those deals would have been made public, uh, certainly the, the bigger ones. Did yeah. you get a sense of what they were trading at in terms of a multiple of their annual recurring revenue? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there was a spectrum. So we were an enterprise player. So we were playing, we worked with a smaller number of client, bigger clients. There are mm-hmm. SMB players like MailChimp that work with, you know, millions of smaller stuff. clients. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So more risk, more client risk on our side than on their side. Um, so the smaller kind of SMB players uh, were getting much higher multiples than the enterprise players, just because mm-hmm. I believe their customer profiles um, and such. Uh, what percentage of your revenue did your largest customer represent at the time? <laughs> when I joined, uh, a double-digit percentage. Um, when we sold, uh, under four. So, wow. uh, yeah, that was um, that was one of my major concerns. Actually, joining the business. Interesting. But you got it down because you you reduced their billing over time or because you increased the revenue so much that on a bigger base, their percentage became smaller? I would say their billing was pretty flat, maybe slightly down. Uh, it was a large old media company. Old, that's it. My, my son says old school, but like a large, <laughs> a large traditional media business in the UK that wasn't really growing, that was managing like uh, growth via costs and uh, um scared scared me let's put it that way like one of these yeah. media companies you could go up belly up tomorrow but uh they were really smart in the way they uh communicated with customers and they're still an investor customer today and um i would you know i don't want to say we, we were very strategic in their in their survival 
But even even though it was down to the top, the largest customer being just four percent of your revenue, you still felt that your valuation was somewhat discounted by the fact that you had customer exposure. In, in other words, being selling to enterprise meant that if you lost one customer, it it was a, a much more material event than. Mailchimp loses customers all the time. <laughs> Mailchimp fires customers all the time. But yeah, um, yeah I uh, yeah, definitively. Um, longer sales cycles, um, more more barriers to closing, integrations and such, uh, uh, and more risk. And so those are definitely some, but also our size, right? So at just under nineteen million in revenue, like there's thresholds in these models. You know, ten million is a big one. Uh, Twenty million is a big one. Whether or not that's yeah, whether or not that's right or wrong, um, we would get that. Like, interestingly enough, many of the acquirers who who poked around that we actually communicated with thought we were bigger than we were, because we had done such a good job of making like a splash and getting out in front of customers, and that it it you know it, it was often a little bit humbling uh, when they found out how you know that we weren't as big as uh, as as they thought we were, um, and similarly with the private equity firms that. You know, so it wasn't just our clients. Everyone thought we were bigger than we were. Uh, and so, interesting we, enough, we had a large pipeline, right? We were really good at pipeline management, and and we actually that was an interesting carrot. If we could, you know, keep our close rate going the way it was, what has it been? Two and a half years now. I bet you we would have been closer to forty million today. Hmm. So, what were you seeing in the marketplace as it relates to valuation multiples? Like, what was what were you seeing in the other deals being done? Did you get a sense of a multiple of revenue or multiple of EBITDA that was that seemed like the market rate, so to speak? So, so we ran the business at pretty much break even, uh, investing every dollar back. So, our there wasn't really an it wasn't really an EBITDA multiple. Um, though we you could you could have backed into one, um, three to five x for a company like us seemed about right. Uh, X being rev- top uh, or revenue, ARR, sorry, right? top line, yeah, ARR, um, and then one X anything that was like one off. So mm-hmm. if ninety percent of the business was you know reoccurring, you'd get three to five, and then the services dollars, which come along with software, often they're outsourced. We kept them inside. Um, those dollars were closer to one, maybe one point two, uh, top line. If you go downstream to the SMB players, you're looking at the high end, probably 15 to 15 to 20. And on the low end, around 10, 10 X all based on growth. Yeah. Because you guys were growing fat 50% a year. You know what? I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you, 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 you get in these conversations and they're like, Oh, only 50 or only, (laughs) only 48. And you're like, really, really? Yeah. You try it. (laughs) Hey, and I think as a, as an exec looking to, sell your business. I think that's one of the things you have to be ready for is that you're, they're going to poke holes on everything you've done and you can't take it personally, but it's all a negotiation tactic at the end of the day. They're talking to you for a reason. Um, that's the way I always looked at it, but, um, what sort of holes did they personally. poke in you guys? No, growth rates only 50%. You know, why isn't it 75? I'm like, I don't know. Why isn't it 95? Um, you know, then there's, uh, there's a, uh, you know, retention numbers, let's, you know, like health of customers. Um, so having a big client at 4% that, that many would argue may not be that healthy. I don't know. Newspaper businesses, you tell me, um, you know, that's a hole. 
is that client going to be around in two years? So let's discount that piece, right? So like that sort of stuff um, was probably most of it. That was most of it. And and so you hired a, a an M and A firm uh, uh, out of the UK, uh, out of Boston. Uh, oh, okay. Shea, right. Shea and Co. Great, great company. Okay. So what was the reaction like to Shea and Co.'s work? Like how many sort of folks sort of nibbled on the offer and, and how many actual letters of intent did you get? So we spoke to five or six advisory firms. Oh, you mean the, you mean the acquisition? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we had four LOIs. Um, and they came from strategics and private equity. They, uh, it's amazing. Um, the, how different companies value your business, the range in offer like was, I, I mean, I, I'll say, I'll share. There were some down in the high thirties and there was in terms of high 30 million million. Yeah. And yeah. then there was one in the high fifties and, and, uh, a strategic and, uh, that ended up, you know, at 61 million. Um, but it was interesting, the range of offers and the, uh, how private equity versus, you know, strategics valued the business and none of the offers were where Henry, where we thought we should be, we should thought we should be higher. Right. That's always the, uh, I think that's always the case, unfortunately, for the most part. Um, what know. did you think the company should have been worth? I don't know if it really mattered. <laughs> um, it, you know, I, I there's a little bit of seller's remorse, I think, for most of us at the end of the day. Like we we negotiated. It's again, it's not just the dollars, right? It's how are those dollars going to flow? So, what is the business really? You can you could settle on a number. Let's call it sixty million. Is that money gonna be paid up front? Is it all cash? Is it in equity? Is it paid on a schedule over time? Is there an earnout? Like all of that played into it. And and when we started having discussions with potential acquirers, the all cash upfront offer seemed like it would be worth more to us than something tiered over time. Um, especially considering that we, I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, it was time. It was time to sell. The founders wanted to do new things. So they didn't want to be locked up for years. Got it. So if I'm, if I'm doing the math, uh, the, the sale price, I think because Upland Software was the ultimate winning yep. acquirer and, and they reported it as being 61 million USD, yep. I believe. Yep. Um, yep. 18 million revenue. So it, it, roughly 3.6 times ARR and 3.3 times revenue. So sort of in the range that you thought maybe a little on the lower end, a bit, but who knows? It, you know, at the, exactly. Who knows? And uh, I think they, you know, it's, it was interesting in the, in the letter that Jack McDonald sent to, uh, to, uh, to our board. Who's Jack McDonald? Oh, the CEO of Upland Software. Okay, uh, I'll never forget this, which I actually was very endearing, and um, and uh, I must say, like, set the right tone. He wrote something to the tune of, "I have completed forty successful acquisitions over fifteen years against 
43 or 44 signed LOIs demonstrating a strong track record of, of certainty to close or something like that. Um, and he went on to say that like, he was the decision maker. He was the chairman of the board. He, like there wasn't a larger committee that they'd have to run through and that he only wanted uh, a short, I think it was six weeks, 45 days of diligence. That when you put an offer on a table like that, you know, sure. Maybe you think 61 is not enough. Maybe you want 80, but like, who knows, right? These things, just because an offer is made doesn't mean you're going to sell the business. Um, he made it as simple as possible. And uh, that was, that was valuable. There was value there for us. It's, it's so, I'm so glad you shared that because certainty to close is, oh man, that, I did, I just, I just did an interview with somebody who took the highest offer from a private equity group, you know, uh, told his employees, blah, 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 blah. Ultimately, the private equity group didn't have the money to close. They didn't close. It ruined his oh, business. Man. It was a disaster, right? But yeah. uh, that's a tough story. That's a tough story. Yeah. 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 But so certainty to close has a, certainly a material value. And it sounds like he had a track record of doing it. So. And a forty-five day diligence. Take me inside the boardroom. You've got, you've got yourself, uh, who's been with the business for two years, and presumably has, uh, uh, you know, obviously had a tremendous value in two years. You had Henry, founder, and all the the emotional, you know, elements of that, and Steve also, uh, uh, yep. that piece. It would be life changing for them, clearly as well. Um, and then you had this sort of professional money, the, 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 the BGF business growth fund, the private equity group who probably do this stuff all the time. It's just kind of like a, bit of a yawn for them. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the, take me inside the boardroom when you're, when you're, when you're looking at these offers, these four LOIs. So BGF had James Austin, their chief investor, uh, in the room, he was on the board and they had an observer, Sarah, uh, who I had negotiated with years ago before. And they had appointed a non-exec director, uh, Pete Opperman, who, who uh, didn't work for the company, non-exec, didn't work for BGF either, um, but has made a career on boards and done very well. And, and then on the Adestra side, Steve Henry, myself, our CFO, uh, our, our, our regional director of, uh, of uh, APAC, and um, our commercial director, Henry, uh, another Henry Smith, believe it or not. So the... Um, yeah, we had a we had a decent number of uh, opinions and people in different stages of life, uh, in uh, you know varying levels of commitment to the business. You could argue, you know, like it, reality is, it wasn't a perfect room. It was it was a room of the best that we could muster, um, and that's often the best you can do. And the uh, I want well, everyone in that room. Um, the thing we had going for us was a strong rapport. We'd over-invested in time together so that we all understood our individual needs and our individual wants and desires uh, as, as honest as they, as, I mean, assuming everyone was honest. And, and over the years, you tend to uh, get to know people. And it, it, it was a very friendly group. Um, so 
the convert the the interesting thing is that Stephen Henry uh, still own the majority of the company, so we're all there as a board, um, and we have a vote. But at the end of the day, like they could, they were the two key decision makers along with BGF, but um, uh, that could could make or break this deal. And and they they spent time together on their side, making sure that they as recommended um you guys go off and come together as one to this meeting um not separate not you know don't come to the meeting with two different opinions if you can um come with a, a uni unified kind of thought did and, bgf uh, ha so bgf was a minority investor but did they have more votes on the board or just the one vote so they they could have killed the deal if they wanted to yes okay they had they could have killed the deal and uh you know i it was a rather, there was, there was no, everyone was on board. Um, it was, it, it, it was one of these situations. And like, I think I said earlier, I've been through a few of these and they're not always this way, but this was like, yeah, the time is right. The money's right. It's, it's not the, it's not, it's not like a, it's not the biggest, it's not the, it's not as big as we thought it might be, but it's, it's significant and it's game changing. And Given the marketplace, the environment, you know, the amount of time and energy everyone was putting in to build this business, it felt right. We had also, which I hadn't had a chance to speak to, had rolled out an employee stock op options pool to everyone. So we were able to carve enough off to make everyone, you know, to, to, to reward everyone for their service. Um, and I think that was the biggest piece at the end of the day. If I remember correctly, Stephen Henry... They cared. They were like, the money's right for us. I want to make sure the team's taken care of. So like we went down this discussion with BGF, BGF about what are the levers we can pull to make sure that like if this deal goes through in a few months, you know, team still has jobs. Um, they're family business. At the end of the day, these guys are friends. Like they'd hired friends and family over the years in various parts of the world. And like, this wasn't going to be the last time they were going to see these people and they truly cared about their teams. And, and like I said earlier, identified with this business. It was like part of who they were. So that tended to be where a lot of the conversation went um, at the end of the day. And unfortunately there's not many levers <laughs> you can include in a deal post-sale to guarantee that everyone will be, uh, you know, will have a job. That's was anyone, I was. was anyone advocating for, uh, you know, let's let's send Shea back out there and 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 tell him to, you know, play one offer off the other and get these guys up because you know I, was anyone sort of making that case or taking that position? I think I was the one making that case. <laughs> okay, I I uh, listen as as a significant shareholder and a member of the board of vote, not the final decision maker, but you know a part of the team making the decision. That was where I chimed in a lot. I was like, guys, this is a good multiple. There are better. Um, we can push for more. Um, you know, let's get something going here. What the appetite wasn't there. And um, I think, you know, so I, I didn't push it too hard. I, I didn't continue to push it. How did that impact your relationship with Henry? We're close as ever. Um, and I think in my, you know, at the end of the day, while we may have left money on the table, there's no real way of knowing. I, I live under, I haven't, I've always lived, or I just think always. In the last like 20 years, I've developed a 
like a, I don't like to live with regret. You can't change the past. It, it's, 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 if those, I, I often come across those who do, and it's like, it, it, it impacts their ability to move forward. Like for me, it's like, it's a great deal. It was a win all around. Pat myself on the back, pat the guys on the back. You know, like for me, I, uh, I have no complaints. I, and, and I'm not, so I'm not here to like, while I might've pushed that kind of needle a little bit in the con a conversation, I was quick to observe. There wasn't an appetite for it um, and move on to, to, to other things. And I mean, life is a series of decisions, a series of experiences. There's no end game for me. I'm in this for the ride. And, uh, and for me, I enjoyed my years as a customer, years on the board, and years as an operator uh, immensely. And I built lifelong friends and colleagues that I trust because of it. And that's, uh, that's good enough for me. Like, you know, like the money's great, but the rest of the stuff's more important. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And, and there's always that dynamic between, uh, that's why I was so curious about that kind of professional money, so to speak at BGF, the founders, life-changing professional, you know, so anyways, it's, it's a, it's really interesting. And you guys sounded like you had an amazing degree of rapport. We did. We did. And that was important. And, and also with BGF, like BGF is uh, their growth capital, right? Like they, they're a British firm, not a Valley firm. Um, like they're not looking for home runs. They're looking for lots of singles. And they, they told us that in the negotiations up front. And that was funny enough. <laughs> that was another time when I thought the valuation wasn't right. When we were taking money for them, I think we left money on the table when I was on the board taking dollars from BGF and they know that. Um, but again, Henry was more about the rapport, the relationship, the ability to work together, the fact that they were smart money, but they were hands off. All that stuff made more, was more value to him than, um, than Mac squeezing out the last dollar or whatever it might be. What's life been like for you all post-sale before we hit record? We talked a little bit about this notion of kind of seller's remorse and 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 how that can can be a real thing. You know, it's um, it was a good group of individuals, 180 or so of us, you know, across the planet. Uh, it was a special time. We we I, uh, I I I think back fondly on all the relationships that I built during those years. Um, so there is a bit of remorse, you know, like we've all gone our separate ways. Everyone's doing something different. And when you're not working together day in and day out and you have other things you're doing, you know, you trip apart a bit, you can't communicate as much. Um, so there's that, there is a bit of a, you know, let's get the band back together or something. Um, you know, yeah. like, but that's, uh, that's definitely, um, that goes through our, my head from time to time, uh, my head from time to time. I, I have, you know, I, I'm loving what I'm doing now. Um, I wouldn't give it up for the world. Um, so for me, that remorse is more personal, I think, than professional. Uh, and, and, and across the board, those who I've stayed in touch with um, seem to be in good places. So I feel good about, you know, that sort of thing. The guy who was running my Dallas office bought himself a house. Amazing, right? Like, awesome. I, I go, go Toby. I miss that kid. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, I think 
we we were on a trajectory. We had a robust pipeline um, of opportunities we were engaging and uh, moving forward on. And I think, you know, if we had stayed the course, I don't, it would be very plausible for our growth rate to have accelerated um, because the opportunities we were speaking to got bigger and bigger. You know, you kind of work your way up. None of the big, none, the Fortune 100 doesn't usually jump on boards, so and the Fortune 500 jumped on board. You know, so like yeah. um, we were working our way up, and uh, we probably could have kept it going, but you know, can't. How have can't, Henry can't change the past? How have Henry <laughs> and Steve uh, fared post sale? Um, they appear to be doing really well. Uh, you know, they they sold off their houses. They put their kids through school they you know got all their fees paid they uh they are getting involved in other um endeavors uh they still live both live up in oxford um not too far from each other so i think they're doing quite well you know um but uh yeah i'm not there it's hard i'm not in the uk nearly as much as i used to be so well, it's a, it's amazing it's amazing story i'm really grateful for you sharing it with us um I know people are going to want to reach out. What's the best way? Probably on Snapchat. <laughs> what's, what's the best way to folks? Tell people what you're up to now. And then what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they wanted to say hi on social media? Please. Yeah, I, I, I try and get back to everyone who reaches out. So I am more than happy to connect. Uh, Snapchat's a great place to reach out to me. It's McGowan Matt is my, if you search on Snapchat, M-C-G-O-W-A-N. M-A-T-T. Uh, I'm running Snap here in Canada, um, the GM and uh, part of the global exec team and very much enjoying this chapter of my life. You can also find me on Twitter, Matt underscore McGowan, or you can email me at Matt McGowan at Gmail. So um, gmail.com. So very, very easy to find and connect with, I believe. I try and keep it that way. It's important to me. Most important, McGowan Matt on Snapchat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. This is wonderful. I love this. It's, it's nice to relive the, uh, the experience. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.